Hey everybody, Tony here with two quick little things before we start this episode. One is that we will be resuming our regular uh, every other week podcast release. Uh, and the other is that this episode was recorded a while ago, uh, April 2nd. So if some of the stuff, like particularly talk about the primaries, sounds a little off, seeing as the general election is uh, days away, uh, that would be why. Alright, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Marxism Today. I am Red Wagner. And I'm Tony Schmidt. And today we're doing something special. We're not in our usual studio. We're on the road in the office of... Elena Levy-Navarro. And we're here to talk to Elena about hegemony and all sorts of other good Marxist things. And Elena, maybe you want to tell us a little bit uh, about who you are and what you do before we dive into hegemony. So I got um, I got my PhD from Yale University where I was part of a Marxist reading group. So thanks to you two, I got to go back and get some of my books out, which I was really excited about. Oh, cool. I like all my old books. Um, and I'm a literary critic by training. So and uh, I teach here at the UW Whitewater and I teach literature classes. I teach comp. I teach world of ideas that I had Tony in and excellent student um and <laughs> i'm sorry yeah, no and we can't even it's good to get that unrecorded yeah, my mom will not yes. believe <laughs> <laughs> but um so so i teach literature i've i've published one book self-authored i've edited another collection i work on the renaissance and i'm a shakespeare scholar and I'm interested in also cultural phenomenon, so I'm a cultural critic and mm. do things with body image, body size, dieting, um, and other kinds of things. And lately, I'm a, a bit of a, uh, if it's a political activist, but an educational activist, I've been working. I founded an AAUP chapter, which is American Associations of University Professors. It's an organization that actually started in Wisconsin and um, they promote for issues related to labor in academia and not just for tenured professors, but for other kinds of academic workers in general. Nice. So fighting against like the uh, adjunct professor issue, that's I don't know how bad it is around here, but yes. I know out out east it's pretty bad. But that's very important. I mean, this is why I sort of really loved reading this again. Like, I thank you two for getting me to read this, but since I've been really involved in doing lots of things, trying to protect tenure and then extend tenure so that people have job security, um, it's made me really think about this in terms of global capitalism. And what they want is exactly what Tony just said. I mean, this is just one person, but what they want is a group of workers, academic workers that are what one person calls the precariat, mm -hmm. precarious workers, that global capitalism then can, can then use you when they need you and <laughs> spit you out when they don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And our governor, and not just our governor and our legislature, to be controversial, but I can't help it, what they want is to impose that structure on the university and on the state. And what some of my colleagues in Madison and elsewhere, to be further controversial, don't want to understand is that it doesn't matter if you're quote-unquote special under this system, you are just you're not indispensable. You're dispensable, and mm -hmm. you must be dispensable. So this this idea of hegemony made me think about that. What are all the reasons why, even in this struggle, which you know it, people would say is elite, I feel like it is fighting for the people. But why even in this struggle do some people not see it as something that they should care about, even when you would say they're directly impacted by it. Right? They're directly impacted by it. It would directly benefit them. And that's not even talking about people that go to the public universities. And yet somehow people don't identify with that struggle. I think I read something about like Madison about how with however much they ended up cutting, they ended up spending another it was seven million dollars or something 
to try and keep a few of their top-tier researchers on board. And it's like, well, you're not even saving money at this point, so you can't make, you can't even pretend that it's a money argument. It's strictly, like I said, enforcing the like, status upon the workers. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's more shocking to me not how just plain it is, but how people will ignore how plain it is. It's, yeah, like, it's a Gemini. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's what I think. And so it isn't about money, because it is about the expansion of some other person calls it the corporate capture, but it's about the expansion of this kind of global capitalism. And I think the Republicans do this, but this is a general corporate trend, this attack Mm -hmm. on any public good, any public realm, because that was another thing I was thinking about in terms of this idea of hegemony. If we define hegemony to be what are the institutions in place, the ideological you know, uh, things you believe, things that you're invested in, what are all these, how do they make you stop thinking about your material situation and what's for your economic well-being? Um, what are all these things? Then I started you know, thinking about that generally, that people don't care about the, the public is something that, some people feel that the existence of a public realm is a affront to them, right? Well, it's Those communism. <laughs> <laughs> so this trend to just keep on saying, if there's a public park, we need to privatize it. If there's a public school, we need to privatize it. If there's a public university, we have to privatize it. Some people are profiting from it, but it's also that the structures that are in existence don't want us to think differently. And having public... Um, commons or assets or things we enjoy is a different model. The changes that we're talking about that are trying to be imposed upon universities here in Wisconsin and throughout the world reminds me a lot of what I think is probably going to be a major fight that'll happen in the following decades in just about every industry, which will be the attempt by capital to turn the current corporate structure into the gig economy, right? The the Uber driver yes, driver yes. style, yeah. where the the capitalists will only hire you for the small amount of time that makes that capitalist the most amount of money, and then you'll be discarded, thrown away quite easily because it's not a full-time employed position, it's not a tenure-track position, it's just forcing you to cobble together a living by always looking for another gig. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people realize around that, because I work with a bunch of younger college kids, and I was, I don't remember how it came up, we're talking about zero hours contracts, and I go, oh, I've never heard of that, I go, and one of them, like, works at Walmart, I'm like, okay, are you guaranteed a minimum number (laughs) of hours? Well, no. I'm like, okay, well, then you're on a zero hours contract. Have you ever looked at that? Like, oh, well, yeah, whatever. That's not a big deal. I get hours. I'm like, right. But if you make too much money or they just don't like you suddenly, you won't get hours. It's, I don't think that's uncommon with just any other job where people don't realize exactly what they're agreeing to in their employment. And, you know, they're thinking of the short term sort of gains. And I wonder if that's part of where people get into this trap always difficult to use the term, like, culture of poverty. Oh. More like how Michael Harrington used it, as opposed to how it sort of got appropriated by the right, where, you know, um, the lower income you have are, the more likely you are to not have, you know, you can't think as long-term because you, you know, it's just not a scale that you can mm, Your situation deal with. doesn't allow it. Yeah, your situation doesn't allow it, so you're always looking for the short-term gains, the yeah. short-term interest, and I think that's where a lot of things like that are easily more infiltrated because they go, oh, like, yay, Walmart's raising people up to slightly above the minimum wage so they don't have to actually, so that they can say, well, we, you don't need 15, we gave you 10 or whatever. You and, bring up a good point because I would flip it a little bit. And even though I we could talk about, you know, the poor people in a culture of poverty, that might be an education of, of short-term thinking because you're talking about college students, Gramsci talks a lot about this idea of how the educational system, depending on what it is, can be used, again, for hegemony, for the courses of making people unable to think outside of their material conditions. And this would be a sad state of affairs if this is general, but a lot of people would argue that certain forms of our educational system are meant to make people just not accept their current situation. 
And one thing I could feed, and this would be very controversial, um, but one thing I could say is this emphasis on entrepreneurialism. And that's a big push here and throughout the United States and probably throughout the global educational system. Oh, you want to be an entrepreneur. What is that except for valorizing what you just said, being read, being Mm -hmm. precarious, Mm -hmm. being expended, being the Uber driver? I forget what term you use for that. But it's the gig economy. Yeah, gig economy. So Mm -hmm. this is is our educational system in this case, and I don't want to put more firm names on it, teaching people to think in that way and to perhaps unthink other ways. Because if you think about it, there's a lot of short-term stuff that could, I don't know if lead to revolution, but could lead to see you thinking differently, like getting angry at your boss because he or she doesn't give you hours. But if I start valorizing this idea that I'm an independent contractor and that I'm free because mm-hmm. I think the American idea does that, then I can't. I don't see that. So I'm just flipping it to think, does some certain forms of education have the opposite effect of getting you to identify with the rich, get you to identify with Donald Trump to throw out an entrepreneur, (laughs) and get you not to identify with your class or potential class. But this idea that education, this is why it's not good to disempower the faculty, to go back to my idea. I'm not saying I can criticize individual faculty, but in order to say the kind of things I'm saying, we do need tenure. Because do you think Scott Walker wants me to say that? It's against his initiatives. I don't think Mm -hmm. Robin Voss wants me to say that. And I think lots of other people don't want me to say this. Mm -hmm. So that's the other big problem. I was actually shocked. I work where, I guess I quit now. I worked with somebody who's an entrepreneurship major. And I had no idea you could get a degree in that. There's a program here where if you have a business idea, they will pour money into it. Yeah. For you, yeah. or, or I mean, I, don't th- I think they called an internship, yeah. and I'm struggling to remember the name. I guess it yeah, we have a lot of, of those different programs, yes. But I was shocked by this. You know, and they're cutting funding left and right for stuff. Vetting those as actual good ideas is a problem. I think that's another thing that's de-emphasized with entrepreneurship. Uh, again, for where I work, we get a lot of like new products that come through that people want us to assess, and a lot of them are not the best ideas. Like, it's kind of a clever idea, but it's nothing that you're going to be able to sell. It's nothing you're going to be able to market. And when you tell them and uh, give them a nice little report to all the patents that, you know, already cover this and all the businesses and all the competition, their general response is, what is wrong with you? You don't know what you're talking about. There's almost like an entitlement once people take on the role of an entrepreneur. That term, entrepreneur... It's highfalutin, it's designed to make you think, oh, I'm not a worker. Because that's the other thing that I've often wondered, this is again about hegemony, that's why I mentioned earlier about the governor um, not using the term worker even. I mean, I know, I see this as an assault on, you know, this sort of human Western intellectual tradition of which Marx comes out and all the other people come out, which led to the ability of people to think beyond the immediate present and the immediate material circumstances. And when it ever, we have this idea of corporations just capturing everything, and when we tend to use these analogies and metaphors from um, capitalism, what the effect is, is it has the ability that you cannot think in different ways. And when you say that way, Tony, about the fact that well, you're talking about people getting upset when you question it, but the thing before that is that that person's spending all of his or her time thinking about making money. So what are all the things that he cannot think because he's doing that? And that mm-hmm. to me is making the because the purpose of the education, at least under the liberal arts, is that you have just time to think. And what they're doing now is what our society is doing. Everything's speeding up, so we have no time to think or to talk like we're doing. Everything is my internship, my this work, work study. I don't, of course, I know debt, so materially I have to work two jobs. Everything is putting pressure so that even if the educational system was the best, I don't have the time to do all those things that I think lead to education and besides the participation in the classroom. So, I mean, that is, that's a kind of hegemony in the sense that the instit- institutions cause pressure on the individual. And then after that, then there's changes in those institutions as well. So what you're talking about is a change 
in the ability of the individual to think in different ways. I think it's interesting how you tied the hegemony, like the the ideological yeah. ruling structures, to the material ruling structures in your last comment. Um, how we do certain things to, you know, impose student debt, for example, was was one that you used, where that that causes students to instead of participating in activism or the arts or whatever whatever thing they might want to do instead they have to throw themselves once again into the cogs of capitalism to look for another gig to be be on the lookout you know work more jobs or longer hours or whatever it is and and you can see how the the material structure supports the hegemonic structure in that sense that even without education celebrating entrepreneurs even without uh having a a consumerist corporate media filled with commercials and and all of the essentially brainwashing that comes with that even without that you you the basic structure is already supporting a a certain ideology i think the student debt thing is always a scary thing too because talking to kids with the elections and stuff I'm like, oh, well, you guys are young. You should vote for Bernie Sanders because he wants to make education free. And the response I've been getting is, well, we already have debt, so I don't care because that doesn't help me out, <laughs> which is such a sad and weird thing. It's very scary because, yeah, you just have to take whatever crap job at a call center or uh, whatever is the first offer out of work which maybe isn't exactly what you want to, you know, normally it seems to be a lot of sales positions for companies as opposed to people who have like a marketing degree or advertising or they'd like to do something more creative, a little more intellectual and they're forced into sort of the low end things and you can't complain because you need health care and you need to pay your debt off right away. The key is to think about us in this overall structure. I also feel, I also feel for, you know, the academic staff, other workers here, I mean, because the union rights were taken away, and I mean, there's many, people are precarious, and when we're talking, I'm wondering how much, because this, America seems very characterized now by fear, I mean, that's what I take the Donald Trump to be, and I'm wondering, just talking to you guys, how much of this fear is some sort of bubbling up from our economic situation, and not just that wages are stagnant, which is what the reporters would say, but that we don't want to understand somehow how precarious our situation is. So instead it becomes easier because we do, that maybe because that's the only way we can be part of a collectivity. It seems easier to be scared of ISIS because I love talking to this chemistry professor here and he confirmed what I knew so I didn't have to talk to him. And find out to say something even more controversial. That's what I guess I'm doing today. That the ISIS bombs in um, in Europe are nothing. I mean, meaning that they're very easy to make. And the only reason why I wanted him to say that is because I felt that the media was making, and I'm not saying ISIS is good, but making ISIS sound like this major national, uh, and it, it is to a certain extent, but major uh, mastermind, you know, that was on the verge of doing this. And I sometimes think that they're just a band of hooligans, hooligans that you need to get rid of, but what? yet we build them up into this thing because it gives us so much meaning. But then I was thinking because we project onto them all our fears that are in our life and it's easier to project on them and to feel part of that collectivity or to project on the Mexican immigrant or to project mm-hmm. on whatever group of people than it is to say anything about our material circumstances. So I don't know if you guys think that. That's just what came into my mind when you were talking, Red. I'll, I'll double down on that yeah. and go somewhat conspiratorial sounding. <laughs> and that, you know, the first time you hear about ISIS, if you go back in the news, is when they were in Iraq and they started going towards the oil fields instead of towards Syria. (laughs) Because until then, they were known as the moderate Syrian rebels, or perhaps the ones that we didn't want to acknowledge we were funding and giving stuff to us in the Saudis and Turkey, um, and maybe not directly. These are part of those rebel groups that people were going, oh, but how do we know these are getting into the crack hands and the people, and oh, you vetted them. And it was fine until they stopped doing what the U.S. and the other Western powers wanted them to do, 
and started turning towards the oil stuff. And I noticed immediately, I can't remember the religious minority group that they went after. Everybody was like, oh, oh yes, these. yes, the Christian group. Yeah, yes. they're all on this mountain, and oh, they're murdering these people. And I'm going, well, how long have they been doing that? Like, I can't imagine suddenly there's this group that sprung out and is trying to wipe these people out out of nowhere. I don't think it actually is a conspiracy, but it works very conveniently for the power structures to suddenly have this boogeyman that they sort of helped create that they can divert attention to, to sort of solidify the power. I mean, I brought this up, you know, this, this bomb making ISIS, et cetera, not because they're not a threat, but because we have so many other threats, bigger threats. Like, I would say to the public good, a bigger threat is, and it is the Republican Party, and it's a small wing of them, attacking all these public assets and good and public information, etc. But instead of concerning ourselves with that, which would have a material benefit on us, and then there's other things like public transportation, investment in the people, checking water, all these things, we then suddenly care so much more about this band of people on the other part of the world. So that's what makes me think this way. And then I think that maybe the condition of being materially insecure, being precarious, is is good for people because, I don't know, maybe there's a survival instinct in human beings and we don't want to admit we're in this situation, that we're precarious. So then it's easier to project it onto all sorts of external forces. Literally, people are worrying about the mechanism, but I also think there's a condition in which by making the people more and more um, precarious in their employment and making them have to work two jobs, Mm -hmm. that that serves the interest of the powers that be. I, I think it has a lot to do, especially with the rise of Donald Trump. The tension from the class war, I don't think ever subsides. It just becomes misdirected. The reality, especially of white males, has not really kept up with their expectations, especially if they don't have a college degree. Yeah. Part of that is because there were so many other groups that have been catching up, and that's a good thing. That is a major trauma to those folks who have defined themselves by, for example, being the provider for a family. You know, and it might be, yeah, my my wife is the homekeeper and provides that and as long with the emotional support for the family. And but 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 if if the man has defined himself by I am the person and the thing that I do is the thing that I provide is the income and then they can't anymore because of the plant closing or whatever. That's, I think, a a big psychological trauma. And that person wants an answer. They they want, you know, someone who's going to stand up and say very confidently what the answer is. And Donald Trump isn't giving the right answer, but he is standing up and very loudly saying, you know, giving an answer, saying, you know, the the problem that you have is... This minority group yeah. or, you know, or that. Yeah. And and when it comes to terrorism and things like that, it's like, OK, the you know, you can think about it very simply and then just say very simply, you know, that, that if, if you look at Donald Trump, he has some of the most simple statements yeah. of any politician. He's specifically <laughs> speaking at, at a very low reading level, which I don't think is inherently a bad thing to speak no. at a low reading level. But he He's providing the simplest version, which is there are bad guys and we're going to beat the bad guys, which I think is is a problem because he's all he's doing is trying to give an answer to the tension that people feel. And the answer he's giving, he's made sound simple, but doesn't solve the tension. Yeah, it kind of it makes me think exactly to sort of jump back to ideology, yeah. which I think is very intertwined with hegemony. In fact, I don't, don't really know where if I could untangle one from the other. Yeah, me neither. That's the one. Yeah, before you get started, I I was thinking about that because we've had so many episodes where we've talked about ideology. Yeah. And I thought, oh, today we'll talk about hegemony. And then I thought, what's really the difference? <laughs> this this is my thought, and you can tell me yeah. if you if you think I'm on to something here. I think ideology is 
any thought in the world that's trying to gain favor, that there, there are many ideologies out there all competing. You know, there's, there's um, religious ideology, which in some ways is quite strong, but I don't think it's the dominant ideology anymore and, 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 and so forth. When we talk about hegemony, that's an ideology, a set that all works together and has won so strongly that hardly anyone recognizes it as ideology anymore. It's, it's an ideology that holds so much strength that everyone buys into it, or almost everyone, even the people that that yeah. ideology is, is pounding into the ground. Even the people that it doesn't favor um, have bought into it. At that point, I think it's it's the the term I or uh, the term hegemony is the right one. Okay, yeah, I I like that. That's better than how I was thinking because I was thinking of it as, I guess, like a battlefield and hegemony being the front line. It's, oh, okay. it's that definition from the competing. It's where you can see, or what yeah. where the edge is. The, the vanguard of ideology, if you will. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I, I think you, I think I like your explanation better. Oh, well, I like your explanation. I mean, when I think of hegemony, just throwing out words, I would probably add to it, yeah, ideology, and, and then everything that sustains that, which would come down mm. to the individual, but it would be habits of behavior that are ingrained, you know, what I do with my daily life, my habitus, how I carry my body, my institutions I participate in, what kind of ideas do they generate. So I would add institutions as well as individual behavior. But you know, what you said is correct. I mean, when I think about ideology, I think it's it's imposed on us, but we also embrace it. So if a husband suddenly, for example, has been bringing back down, you know, bringing the money home, his wife is going to do things, you know, and that's the way that your affections are tied into this. But she's going to be doing things to project and also make him feel good about doing that. And then the day he doesn't bring the money home, and this happened a lot in the 70s and 80s. I grew up in Detroit where the plants closed. Then suddenly it all tears apart because their relationship so infused with this ideological model that it can't, I mean, that's it. Yeah. So I agree with you because, and that's that's what's the saddest thing. I mean, that's human life, but ideology can kill you. Oh, I remember what I was going to say that. Zizek. Oh, yeah. So that, talking about Trump makes me think of Zizek and, like, I think the way he does stuff is almost exactly the way Zizek defines fascism in the, the Perverts Guide to Ideology. It's taking just, uh, what do you use, Jaws as an example, the shark and projecting everything onto it, and that's what you need to destroy. Oh, and I think Trump's been a little around. He mostly is blamed it on immigrants, which is the pretty yeah. traditional thing. He singled out uh, Mexican immigrants specifically. He's sort of backed off on a specific group now, but... Well, I don't know. Since I'm half Mexican, some of us are good, but most of us are rapists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you went to an Ivy League. But what do you guys think? This is one other thing about Donald Trump. I talk to academics about Donald Trump all the time, or I've been at conferences with academics, some of whom think of themselves as, I don't know if radical, but at least progressive, some radical. And when I try to use the word fascism, they get very upset and say that fascism can only be used in regard to Mussolini or this or that. And I feel like that's an example of hegemony where it's an intellectual hegemony, meaning that by their process of being, quote unquote, I don't want to call it educated, but trained mm -hmm. as PhDs, they've learned, they've been told not to think these connections. And because I say calling him a fascist... And if I want to be academic, I could temper it and say there's fascist impulses. <laughs> yeah. But using that term fascism is allowing me to make a connection and to, you know, hail him, to use Althusser's idea, and to name him and try to, you know, exert some force. But yet my academic friends, and many of them would say, no, 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 that's going too far. 
So do you think that that would be an example of an intellectual unthinking, or what do you guys think about that? Well, I think, I think part of the problem is it's very in vogue and oddly on the right to call people fascists or Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I'll, I'll blame Seinfeld because I don't like Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. The soup Nazi thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, that... <laughs> and oh, that's I, I'll pretend that that's... That that's definitely the beginning of that. <laughs> but, I mean, I... You know, people will throw that out there. Oh, you're just a Nazi about this and you're a Nazi about that. And I think people get nervous is then where you tie the Holocaust into that. And... I think as long as Donald Trump's not murdering people, I think people are a little... Cause I, I think people, even though... Uh, I don't think... Or I guess I don't know enough. Mussolini, he didn't have... Did he execute people? I know he had well, He worked with Hitler. Right, so but... He can't, but he... But he, they, like, they didn't have well, their own... Well, he put Gramsci, since we're talking about Gramsci... Right, he threw prison, Gramsci in prison. And he, in fact, killed him, so... Right. And he did other things. Yeah, I guess I just don't know enough no, about no, the World War II, fine. but, yeah, no, no, you no, know, no. like, I feel like people tie that up into it so much that they're, I wonder if that's what makes people nervous about it, or that it's just used too much. I have yeah. seen a lot of, yeah, people wrangling over, oh, can you do that? So some, I think it was Jacobin had something, I was like, well, maybe you can go palm like a Napoleon-type, like, strongman guy. But I, I think I would use fascism because for every sort of definition I could think about it, whether it's tying like business into their uh, sort of uh, going forward with capitalism, but having trying to have a sort of retrograde social revolution, um, especially with the scapegoating and the trying to blame, you know, society's problem. The one for me, he pretty well fits all the definitions of fascism not hyperbolically. Yeah, so. yeah. I think that you're right about there's a reaction to the overuse of calling people fascists or comparing them to Hitler. Like yeah. the right was always comparing Obama <laughs> to Hitler, which which I think was a great discreditor of of the arguments of the right. And there was at one point in time, I forget maybe you remember this. There's like what what's it called? Godwin's law. There was like a guy who uh, d decided to make this law that he just came up with. I don't think he has any credentials or anything, but he just he said, "Okay, the first person who references Hitler in any debate, you just automatically lose because there was too many people doing that." And and so he said, "Okay, I'm going to do that." And I I think some I think that was usually a good rule because it's a little most of the time that somebody calls someone else a fascist it's usually that the person is is using too much exaggeration yeah now when it comes to donald trump i i was surprised to see on um network tv uh, what's the guy's name? Chris Matthews, I think. Mm. He after the New Hampshire pro, uh, primary, he said, "Wow, you know, Bernie Sanders, the socialist one, and Donald Trump, and he used the word nationalist one." Oh, wow! <laughs> and I thought, I thought, I was impressed that the word nationalist came up because I didn't think I thought the taboo was too strong to even use the word nationalist to describe uh, a presidential candidate, even Donald Trump. And and to me, the word nationalist was really just, okay, we all know we can't use the word fascist, but come on, he's a fascist. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I thought that was very interesting that he used the word nationalist. And I, and I think for Donald Trump, he's the one candidate that it's, it's probably okay to use the word fascist. Like, do, does he lack... You know, is he Hitler? No, not exactly. But as much as Bernie Sanders is a socialist, and I'm a big fan of Bernie <laughs> Sanders, but we as Marxists have a little bit, I think yeah. our our bar for being a socialist yeah. is a little bit higher. As much as Bernie Sanders is a socialist, Donald Trump is a fascist. 
That's a good, that's very well said, because that's what I always say about Bernie or recently, and it's fine. I mean, you can def defend his positions, but when he says revolution, he's really kind of loosey-goosey about that. Mm -hmm. so, well, he's saying a political revolution. Well, but yeah, but even that, that is an overstatement, I think. He knows enough that he should be saying yeah. that more precisely. I don't know, but you, I mean... Yeah. Although for how for the terms most people think of things and for politics in America, it kind of almost is. Yeah, no, I, I can see that, but it's just that revolution yeah. has a certain meaning to me. Yeah, it's not the revolution I'm exactly looking for, <laughs> but nonetheless, I already early voted for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, another thing, we, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but maybe this would be a, a good thing to come back to. You were mentioning the the morphing of Marxist thought from Marx's very um, kind of number crunchy, almost very economic rooted thought into how did Marxists become interested in hegemony? Yeah, yeah. I think it'd be good for us to revisit that. I found that oh, interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I, um, as I understand this Marxist thinking that, you know, of course, there's always debates about what is and is not Marxist, and some pure Marxist, Marxist would say, would always call someone else, you're not a Marxist. But as I understand it, the development of Marxist theory around maybe the middle of the 20th century moves from this idea that, you know, that there's going to be this revolution that is going to organically come out of the um, progression of the history of, um, well, that dialectical materialism or the history of, you know, changes in capitalism to be people under explaining or trying to explain why didn't it come out of that. So that's when about around 1950s, maybe a little bit later, and we could talk about the student protests in that 1968 as a key figure. But after that, people start focusing on the culture and thinking about this idea of culture and hegemony because to explain why it is that we do not have this automatic movement towards the revolution. Um, and this would be where I think some people would get disturbed and say some of the people that are Marxist theorists, like I would take Foucault in that, or Althusser, or, um, you know, uh, Gramsci for an earlier one, or you talked about um, Jameson, and he considers himself a Marxist. But some people would get upset and say, you don't talk enough about the economics, and that I want you to talk more about the economics, because there had been this turn towards culture, cultural criticism. And so thinking about all these ways in which um, we can think about um, how we're shaped in ways that make us not able to see our material interests. So that's how I read a lot of these people interested in hegemony, that it's that explanation, and I think most people would read it this way, it's that explanation as to why um, the revolution didn't happen. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think that's where some people would get very upset with Foucault, because I think he would say, <laughs> I think when you start getting into thinking about different ways we're trapped ideologically, it starts becoming very hard to imagine the revolution. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, Foucault would then say, um, that's what's weird about Foucault, just to talk about him, but is that then he talks about that liberatory um, discourse and that discourse of liberation. And when we were talking today, I keep on seeing that discourse of American freedom, you know, American freedom. So even the discourse of revolution can be co-opted and you can be in, being trapped in the society and the hegemony, even as you feel a liberation. And I'm wondering that about Donald Trump, since for some reason I keep on going back to Donald Trump. But, you know, those men that are there, and I'm sure women too, I bet you they feel an intense sense of liberation. And they might feel that they're part of a revolution. So mm -hmm. th this is just going to, I don't know if that answered your question, but just going to this idea that, um, you know, it's looking at the culture, different aspects of the culture, but also that um, some people would critique it, too, and would say, you need to keep on getting back to the economic structure, because now you're in this realm, which I love this realm, I'm a literary critic, but you're in the realm of the culture and um, language and all of these things. And some people would say it's just about the economy, but I just, I just find it intriguing that it, 
it is hard for me to think about collectivity coming together, even workers, because everybody has so many different interests. For the divide between the economic and the cultural, I mean, that, that, that is something that you see come up in, in Marxist circles, is, is a little bit of a battle yeah. between those two, and which one is the one that really matters. And I've always felt like that was kind of an odd battle for Marxists to have, because, you know, especially, um, you know, the... the we were talking about dialectics the other day in another episode, but just to bring kind of my understanding of dialectics in is, you know, this this is a great time to use that that concept to say, look, you've got the the economic base of society, you've got the ideological structures of society, and they have a dialectical relationship between each other. You know, if if it was purely economics and no no. Uh, culture mattered at all, then it w- wouldn't make sense for Marx to write Capital, right? The, the, why would you bother r- writing a book, which is clearly just kind of kind of part of culture and all of that kind of stuff? So it's always been to me, okay, there's going to be people that are more interested in the economic side versus the cultural side. That's great, you know, the, and if, if you're more interested in economics and you don't care about cultural law, well, that's fine, that's wonderful, then do that. But I, I think it's, it's always struck me as a little odd to say, well, this is the only way to do it or the only uh, front on which, you know, that there's any kind of struggle going on. Clearly, there's there's cultural struggles going on as well. And that, in fact, that's part of, I think, even the 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 standard vocabulary of the world now. You know, you hear cult- culture yeah. wars all the time, usually without Marxist paying, <laughs> being a player in that war. It's usually just kind of the the... The, the standard right and left, you know, Democrats and Republicans with <laughs> without any of us far lefters in there. But that, that at least the, the concept of culture being something that shapes society is, is something that it seems like most people recognize these days. Yeah, I think for me where I sort of see this weird divide coming up is I think a little bit of a misreading of Marx, and part of that I think is because Marx died before he yeah, finished yeah, doing yeah. his writings and thinkings, because I think people look at the way he talks about the dialectic and the way he sets up sort of the progression of society, like economically, in like volume one of Capital, and say, oh, well, transitions from this to this, and they yeah, take that yeah. to just sort of be a deterministic thing, which I think is wrong. Yeah. I don't think there's, from what I've read of Marx, I don't think there's a real basis for that. And then I think the other thing is, and I don't even know if Marx actually came up with the base superstructure. Is that oh, him yeah. who actually I, used that analogy? I think it might have been. I don't know. Clearly, I need to do more. It's reading. in Althusser for sure. <laughs> it's a, yeah. But well, I think I think Marx might have used the terms. Yeah, right. And I think the, uh. I think it's a decent analogy to sort of understand that. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think I think like Red said, there is a dialectical relationship there. Was I think the way it gets read is it's a one-way street. It's, yeah. And that's the economic determinant. You know, it's the economy and culture. And for sure, the economy has a lot to do with the culture. But you can also change the culture and not actually change the economy. Like, that was the problem with the Soviet Union. Yeah, They yeah. changed the culture, but they mostly left the economy the way it was. They changed a little bit here and there. But that was their big downfall. And then the culture eventually wanted to re-switch back to how it had sort of been before so i think that's where i see those splits as and i don't even think mark saw that as a split because like i guess i keep going back to volume one because that's what he actually finished but he's got you know he talks economics but then he talks culture and history and the worker struggle so he tries to tie that stuff in to it culture in a bit into his economic analysis even I mean, I try to always make my, force myself, not necessarily in everything I write, but to think about the economic situation. And I have noticed that that's a problem because the language of liberation can be used just divested from any kind of sense of your economic well-being. You know, and so when I think this is, I mean, it would be anything, but when I think about the struggle of academic workers and I could say professors, I notice how many times people don't want to think in very strict, I'm in this case, I'm going to say capitalistic terms. Mm. Like I talk about how they're trying to increase our work 
try to make us do more bureaucratic work and how it is labor. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if you guys would say it's labor, but it is a form of labor that I should Mm -hmm. be paid for. But there is an ideological way in which, and, you know, people don't, don't refuse to analyze it in a very basic sense. Like you said about the zero hour contract, that's again, it's basic contracts. That's not Marxist. But some people start thinking more about, oh, I'm a professional, I'm an entrepreneur. And they don't think about, what, am I getting paid for this? You know, the basic stuff you stop thinking about. So that's the sense in which I have no problem with this theory. But in my life, I think it's very important to come down to what are you going to be paid for the work? And that everybody should think in terms of everyone deserves a living wage. How many times people won't say that? They'll instead, I heard, I got a big argument with some person at a bar, so, you know, take it for what it's worth. But that so-and-so didn't deserve a living wage at McDonald's because what did he do Hmm. to deserve it? So you don't think, I mean, and you just, if you think materially, they deserve a living wage. They're doing work. We value their work. We eat their products. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't, don't they deserve a living wage? Yeah. yeah, and it'd be one. I mean, the, the other thing to me is it's always it'd be one thing if the if the resources of the world were so scarce that 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 was all that we could afford as the human race. Yeah. That would be that would be a whole different scenario. But you have to always understand that, and that's I think another uh, ideological um, construct that I, I I think is very much ingrained is the. The folks have a very hard time understanding the relationship between wealth and poverty. Yeah, and, and you know the the idea of a minimum wage. It, some people are against it, but it, but largely there's a lot of people that believe in a minimum wage and might argue over where it should be. The idea of a maximum wage is largely unthinkable by the vast majority of the yeah, population. Good, good. But but the idea that the low wages here can create great yeah. mounds of wealth over here, and that the lower they are here, the greater the wealth is over here, and vice versa. That that's not something that seems to be widely understood, or or something that people seem to I don't know want to recognize, or 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 what I don't know. I think it's interesting you brought up scarcity because yeah. that, of course, makes me think of all my economics class. Yeah. Because what's the very first thing you learn in economics? Scarcity exists, even okay. though, yes and no. I mean, for United States, kind of, not really for everything. It doesn't need to exist. Yeah. It's yeah. something that they never address. So I think, you know, talking with hegemony and stuff, just something like that that's I mean, if you talk to anybody, like what they remember from the one yeah. econ class I do, it's there's scarcity and you have to make opportunity costs because of that scarcity. That's it. And those are deeply ideological things that really frame a, a lot of the problems we've been talking about, I think. See, so. I, I love having done this or doing this because now you guys have convinced me because I'm a big cultural theorist, but... I mean, and I just am thinking, telling you things I do in my life, but you're convincing me that it's the economy, stupid. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just thinking that. But even though you gave a very good, um, uh, Tony, you gave a very good description of basically how education, to double back, how education makes us unthink, or what you said, not think. Mm -hmm. Because when you said that, Red, I was thinking, this is a fault of education. I mean, I don't mean you should blame me, but... It's a fault of education if you can't think that way. Mm-hmm. And if people, I, I would say this, it, it, insofar as people with their contracts don't even think about it, you know, don't think about what I'm paid for, what is my, not even what my work is worth, just basically when I work, I should be paid. Mm-hmm. Insofar as they don't think about that, forget questioning that. That is some deep ideological, you know, that is deeply hegemonic because you should be just thinking about that. That's how our society operates. It operates on contracts, you know. So if you're starting to think about all these other things, to me, that is a sign of how difficult it is, um, how much work it it demands to make us not think this way. Mm-hmm. But I, I also would say it's, you know, I, again, to go back to Red's, 
thing about it being a dialectical relationship, like just even talking about like the economic stuff being what you learn in the econ classes, yeah. like there's the culture feeding back or the ideological apparatus. Um, you know feeding back into the economic base and you know how they really mutually support each other like that and i think maybe that's sort of why the task ends up seeming so uh flashing it was Um, flashing uh, why why the task seems so daunting is because not only reinforce, reinforces itself, but it's so good at shifting around for little things. And maybe that's, I don't know, like I think that's the thing people, like the thing you really got to find is how can you, how do you sever that connection, I guess. I'm trying to think of a better way to put it, but yeah. Yeah, that's the best I got. You know, you got to, Worm your way in between the two and somehow stop that feedback or it's a, it's <laughs> tough, but I never took economics, so I'm sitting here talking with you two guys. I never took economics, so I'm you know I focused a lot on the culture, but um economics is mostly useless. <laughs> <laughs> We well, for I mean, how it's taught, it's. We don't want your professors to hear that. There are but lots of radical, <laughs> lots of radical economic well, econo- economists. Yeah, but for like what you general, I guess, bachelors in economics, it's price. That's it. It's just pricing goods and supply and demand. It's no like greater. Like I had a class on, um, is it money and banking? And we talked a lot about the Fed and the financial system. And the great statement the professor made is that we won't really be using economic models because with the whole economic crash, the models don't really work anymore. So, you know, we'll just ignore those until things are back to the way they were. So, like, (laughs) fully admitting that they just don't work and not like, that's not a problem, whatever, it's just... And I think that's the Federal Reserve's response, too. That's why they want to keep creeping up their rates is because they just don't want to get things back to where it is. Was. I should have said was and not is. They want to get the rate back to where it was previously, pre-recession. Anyway, I would like to thank Professor Elena Levy-Navarro for talking with us. If anybody happens to be listening to this who goes to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater... I highly recommend taking any class with her. Uh, She was a great professor and just a super interesting lady. And that'll do it for this episode. Marxism Today is created by Red Wagner and Tony Schmidt and is a project of the Democratic Socialists of America, Madison, Wisconsin chapter. We are not official spokespeople of the DSA and the views expressed in this podcast are our own. You can find us on Twitter at RedWagner2, that's the number two, and SchmidtAJ, that's S-C-H-M-I-T-T-A-J. Our episodes are all available for download on our blog, marxismtodaypodcast.wordpress.com. You can share your thoughts about this episode and others on our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash marxismtoday. Also, you can find information about the Democratic Socialists of America Madison chapter on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash DSA Madison. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.